Good morning. It's Thursday, the 26th of October, and this is Govind Raj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day: anxiety grips Indian stocks, but global markets and oil steady as diplomatic efforts in the Middle East step up. Goods and service tax notices, including to gaming companies, are now worth more than a hundred thousand crore rupees. For many young Indians, their first car is a super luxury one. Smuggled gold seizures have gone up by 43% in the last 6 months. Fewer tourists are visiting India compared to pre-pandemic peaks, but more Indians are going overseas than ever before. And YouTube revenue drops 12% for the quarter. Microsoft's cloud business is up 29%. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. The markets are slipping. Indian shares posted their longest daily losing run in nearly 8 months on Wednesday as worries over the intensifying conflict in the Middle East and fluctuations in the US bond yields made or kept investors nervous. While the markets have been weak since the day of the Hamas attack against Israel on October 7th, in India the last 5 days have seen weariness give way to some fear. Markets fell for the 5th day on Wednesday with the Sensex falling 523 points to end at 64049 and the Nifty 50 falling 160 points to close at 19122. So the Sensex has now lost about 3% so far in October and down almost 6% from its 52 week high level of 67927 and that was hit not too long ago on September 15th. The Nifty has fallen about 2.7% since the start of the conflict on October 7th. Now, crude was a little changed but holding near $88 a barrel. Remember, it was trading closer to $94 a barrel late last week. The United States and Saudi Arabia have agreed to pursue diplomatic efforts to maintain stability across the Middle East, the White House said on Tuesday, helping to ease fears of major disruptions to the oil market according to Bloomberg. crude spiked in the initial stage of the war as we all saw on concerns that the conflict would escalate potentially threatening exports from iran and risking attacks on tankers in key shipping routes these fears have now ebbed in recent sessions with growing calls within israel to rethink the scope of a ground invasion of gaza according to bloomberg the risk of an escalation cannot be ruled out but economic concerns weigh on prices in the short term ing analysts told bloomberg and that's an important point there being that markets would focus on the short term rather than the distant long term GST notices cross 100000 crore rupees The number of GST notices flying around the country is increasing and so is the amount by the day The gaming industry alone has been slapped with over 100000 crore worth of notices asking for tax and retrospective tax according to Reuters. The core here has been reporting how some players like the Delta Group alone have got tax notices worth over 23000 crore rupees. The Delta Group among other things operates casinos which float up and down the Mandovi River in Goa. But several other companies are also getting notices for periods going back. And one reason for these notices is that the income tax department wants to beat the statute of limitations date. 
And I'll come to that in a moment. The Business Standard reports that the centre is expecting to recover evaded GST of over 50,000 crore rupees, more than double compared to the last year. Now, this could also be the highest ever annual tax recovery, they said. And so far during this year, that's 23-24, the GST authorities have found about 136,000 crore to have been evaded. Of this, about 14,000 crores have been recovered. Last year, figure of evasion was about 101,000 crores and rupees 21,000 crore were recovered. So a significant amount is apparently expected to be recovered from wrongful input tax credit claims by insurance companies, GST payment on expat services under the reverse charge mechanism, clandestine clearances of tobacco products and deals in immovable properties. So why are the notices coming now? The key reason, as we've discussed earlier on the core as well, is the limitation period or statute of limitations for such notices for the assessment year 2018-19 set to end in two months' time, that's in December 31st, and thus there is still time for more notices. And these are for what is known as non-fraud cases, because for fraud cases, the time limit is longer and five years as opposed to three. So back to gaming. In August this year, the GST authority imposed a 28% tax on online gaming companies on the total funds deposited to play online games. Meanwhile, Delta has got an interim relief from the Bombay High Court on about 16,000 crores of tax notices against it. And the court has directed the Director General of GST Intelligence Hyderabad not to pause orders in the alleged tax shortfall without prior permission of the court, according to an exchange filing on Tuesday. So, there are two questions, one specific and one larger. I reached out to MS Money, senior partner at Deloitte Haskins and Sales, and I began by asking him about the reasons for the fresh surge of notices in recent days and also his impressions on whether we were reaching peak compliance or far away from it. Okay, so I think the first thing we need to understand over here is that the notices that are on issue, I'm not sure who has totaled it up. But I'm sure whoever has totaled it up has seen, you know, all the notices. I haven't seen all of them. But when we have all the notices, it is very clear that the notices which have been issued largely to the gaming companies talk of a period from 1st July 2017. The key difference for all of them essentially lay in the fact that it was not merely a change of 18% being now topped at 28%. The 18% was on the platform to be charged by the gaming operator. But the view that GST Council took and therefore the clarifications got issued was that the 28% is payable on the entire value. That is why the values have you know, shot up significantly. Now, to be fair you know, to both sides, as far as the gaming companies are concerned, this is something which is coming as a very bad shock to them. This is not certainly something that they you know, bargained for. And this is something which has kind of come out of the blue suddenly to derail whatever progress they were, you know, making. So they're obviously, you know, I mean, shocked and surprised. But on the other side, if you look at it from the perspective of the taxmen or the tax authorities, they are very categorical in saying that the law per se has not changed. And even in the past, from 1st of July 2017, it was necessary for the gaming companies to charge GST on the entire value. That is a perspective that they have dotted. And in the post-GST council meeting conference, even the revenue secretary was very categorical in saying that they have not changed the law. They have really clarified on the provisions of the law. And if there is a clarification on the provisions of the law, cannot be called retrospective. That is the stand that the government has been taking. But clearly, they have a very long legal battle, you know, ahead, which will be very interesting to watch. 
So this is on gaming companies. And as you said, this definition is something that's being challenged. But many other companies not in gaming are also getting a notices right now. What's your sense on where we are on the overall GST effort? Because the government is also saying that they want to step up even more and collect what I think they consider as outstanding tax. So the other notices which have come across you know, sectors is to a large extent understandable because the period, the first year of GST, which ended on 31st March 2018, the limitation for that you know, has got kicked off. And therefore, there is very clearly a desire of the tax authorities to issue whatever demands are necessary so that the demands don't become time-bound. We also have to bear in mind that because of the pandemic, the audits in respect of GST got significantly delayed. So what should have happened possibly in 2021, early part of 22, did not happen at that point of time. And large part of the work in terms of GST audits ended up 22. Let me ask you a slightly larger question. A lot of other companies have been getting GST notices as well. And in some cases, the amounts are high. In some cases, maybe the amounts are not so large. But obviously, it involves and will involve a lot of time and management from their side. How are you seeing the overall GST landscape at this point in terms of all these targets and what companies will have to do to meet them? See, the overall landscape in terms of GST for corporates is a little tough right now. Because they are suddenly having to deal with a flurry of notices which call for information, which call for data. A lot of notices have been issued asking them to provide the details in a very short period of time. Now, I can understand that the reason behind this is because the first year of GST is getting time barred very, very soon. And therefore, the tax authorities want to issue all their demands before the time bar sets in. So that is the reason why there is a flurry. The other reason we have to bear in mind is because of the pandemic, there were almost two years when the tax authorities could not conduct any GST audits. So therefore, after the pandemic subsided, when corporates and the tax authorities, everyone got back into action, they started doing audits all over the place. And in course of the audits, they have picked up many issues that they feel are where the taxpayer is likely to pay taxes and the taxpayer is liable to pay those taxes. Fortunately for us, we have a very settled legal mechanism where once the notice is issued, it is possible to go and meet the commissioner, explain the reasons for the tax demand and get it done. But overall, these are fairly, I would say, complicated times for most of the corporates who are GST registered and a lot of time of corporates is going into GST matters. If you were to look ahead, as you said, you know, this was a time bar. GST authorities had to send those notices right now because they wouldn't have been able to send them later. Would you say that things could then settle down somewhat in six months to a year's time? Yes, I certainly think so. I think once the time bar period gets over and once the audits become routine, once they get into a two-year, three-year kind of cycle, I think all corporates will learn how to deal with those audits, how to keep the data reconciliation and everything ready for their businesses for the respective years. And the tax authorities will also understand that there are quite a few issues which are unsettled in GST. Hopefully, those will also get settled by that period of time. Right. So the GST department has set fairly aggressive targets. Is it your sense that there is still a gap between what people are due to pay and not paying? I mean, or is the gap large enough or do you feel that we are at pretty, I'm not talking corporate specifically, but in general, or we are reaching a sort of fairly peak level of compliance? I think overall, most of the businesses that 
are liable to get GST registered. They seem to be getting registered. The data in everyone in respect of GST collections has been very, very robust, especially in the last six months or so. In addition, the number of GST returns that get filed, the number of EVA bills that get generated are phenomenally high. So the, if we take the EVA bills as an indicator, because goods cannot move anywhere within the country without an EVA bill, if the value of the goods being transported exceeds 50,000 rupees. If we just look at the EVA bill data that has been going up month on month, you know, progressively over a period of time, to me that indicates that compliance in the GST era is increasing significantly. Now, whether the compliance is the right degree of compliance, whether we still have some people flying below the radar, is something which possibly the GST authorities are investigating now. Mani, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Great talking to you again. Luxury car buyers are getting younger in India. Luxury car owners in India are getting younger and more and more professionals are buying them. This is opposed to the earlier norm of only wealthy families owning luxury vehicles, according to a report or a fairly detailed one from the Business Standard. Vikram Pawa, president of the BMW Group in India, told the newspaper that the customer base of luxury cars has evolved tremendously in the last decade. He said that apart from wealthy families, a new group of achievers has emerged in India. They have a global outlook, are well-traveled and have an eye for luxury products. With a rise in disposable income, they're not hesitant to spend on luxury products and services, he said. There is quite expectedly, and keeping with global trends, a post-pandemic effect playing out here too, and I'll come to the global trend in a moment. Power told the Business Standard that since the pandemic, there is a greater realization among people that they would like to live life to its fullest and enjoy the best things. Moreover, personal mobility is on the rise. The CEO of Audi in India said that they have also seen a rise in first and second generation buyers over the last two or three years and the pandemic, according to them too, has pushed people to live life to its fullest and adopt a luxury lifestyle, which in turn has fueled growth in the category of salaried individuals buying their cars as well. So it almost seems like those who live their life to the fullest will go and buy a German luxury car. Around 59% of BMW buyers in the luxury cars segment are aged between 31 and 45 years and 35% of its buyers are existing customers. In the premium segment, about 62% are aged between 31 and 45 and around 80% of customers are those upgrading from the near-premium or the non-premium segment. Mercedes says their average age of their buyer has come down from 42 to 38 years. And of this, many are much younger, even aged around 30 years, the company told Business Standard. Interestingly, and in a bit of news that's good to hear, women buyers constitute about 15% of Mercedes customers. And the share of salaried buyers, as we hinted to right up front, is on the rise too. From just 8.9%, it's now 14 to 15%. There's also a demand for luxury pre-owned cars. And the pre-owned car retail business, Audi, for example, has seen it grow by 63% between Jan and September this year. Very broadly, around 70% of luxury cars are bought by entrepreneurs and owners of small and medium businesses. And these are often bought in the name of the company so they can claim depreciation. So in the United States, meanwhile, the Washington Post reports that robust spending, especially by the wealthiest Americans, is keeping the economic engine roaring far longer than many had anticipated. Remember that we spoke yesterday of how many economists and others were projecting America's economy to slow down, but the reverse was happening. 
So a healthy job market, extra pandemic savings and soaring home and stock values have all made it possible for high-income households to continue shelling out even as many lower and middle-income families pull back, said the Washington Post. A travel agent told the Washington Post also that for the first time since she started her luxury travel business in 2017, she has seen no signs of a fall slowdown. In fact, people are returning from their summer getaways and immediately calling back, ready to book their next $50,000 trip. Their balance sheets have by and large got stronger, that is, those, the wealthy people, because of high asset values and higher equity values in their homes, and that seems to be supporting spending, an official of the Federal Reserve said, adding that this contrasts with low-income families who are pulling back now that federal stimulus and pandemic-era savings have run out, and middle-income savings who are selectively trading down by buying, for example, paper towels at the dollar store or produce at Walmart. So you can see the contrasts, which are quite similar, between the United States and India. In all, Americans apparently spent $84 billion more in August than they did the month before, according to government data, with much of that spending concentrated in services such as housing, transportation, and recreation. Amazingly, estimates quoted by the Washington Post again suggest that Americans still have an extra $1.7 trillion in extra pandemic savings, with the top 20% accounting for nearly $1 trillion of that balance. Gold smuggling zooms. Meanwhile, as you think about all that inequality, back home, gold smuggling is increasing, which we can infer at least partly by the fact that more of it is getting caught, suggesting where some of that spike in discretionary spending is going. The seizure of smuggled gold increased by 43% between April and September in the current fiscal as compared with the same period in 2022, according to BQ Prime. In the first six months of financial year 23, the customs department apparently seized two tons of smuggled gold compared to 1,400 kilograms seized in all of last year, according to a top official of the Central Board of Excise and Customs. Many of these seizures are happening on land borders with neighboring countries and at major international airports. The official said that there had been no change in duty structure versus last year, but the increase in gold smuggling also depends on factors such as the differences in prices prevailing in international and domestic markets and prices of gold in general for all the reasons that we've been talking about at the beginning have been going up. Incidentally, the government had increased the import duty on gold from about 10.7% to 15% in June 30, 2022 or the end of June. So the objective then was to lower gold imports to check the widening current account deficit, which I'm assuming continues to remain an objective, which has also seen other policy steps. So imports have been falling off gold, at least the official variety, but smuggling is increasing. A policy lesson in economics, if there was one, since the dawn of economic liberalization in India. And I will leave it at that. Indians are traveling overseas like never before. Foreign tourists are not visiting India as much as before. India is yet to touch pre-COVID levels when it comes to foreign tourists visiting the country. Latest data for August 23, released by the Centre for Monitoring Indian Economy, shows that the number of foreign tourists arriving in India has shrunk by about 20% compared to August 2019, when about 0.8 million or 800,000 people visited. On the other hand, despite high fares, visa issues and what have you, Indians are rushing overseas. In the same month, that's August 2023, 2.5 million Indians travelled overseas, a 6% jump from August 2019. 
Back to international arrivals, CMI data says that in Feb 2020, just before the pandemic struck, 1.02 million foreign tourists or about a million tourists came to India. In August 23, the number was at or is at 640,000. The Tourism Ministry reiterated its goal of attracting 100 million international tourists earlier this month and the government envisions a 1 trillion tourism economy for India in the long term. All of this is coming from the business standard. Bangladesh remains India's largest source of foreign tourists, accounting for about 24% of all arrivals and this is followed by the United States at 17%. Canada, which is in the news for, among other reasons, not giving visas right now, is 4.1%. So if you take away neighboring countries and then also visiting families and relatives of Indians who could be US or Canadian citizens, the number would drop even more and quite sharply, I suspect. So the overall low tourist arrival numbers are a source of worry. One reason could be, of course, the cost. Most good resorts and hotels in India are outpriced right now thanks to domestic demand and compared with, let's say, Southeast Asian peers. There could be other reasons which I suspect, but we'll explore with someone from the industry in coming days. YouTube revenue jumps 12% for the quarter, Microsoft cloud business 29%. Microsoft and Google both saw improvements to their core businesses during the September quarter according to results posted by both companies late Tuesday. Google's advertising revenue grew 9% year-on-year to about $60 billion during the quarter beating Wall Street's expectations and up notably from the 3% reported in the previous June quarter, all according to the Wall Street Journal. This was helped, interestingly and importantly, by a pickup in YouTube's advertising revenue, which has jumped 12% for its quickest pace in two years. It probably isn't a coincidence that this was during the period in which Hollywood's crippling labor strikes resulted in fewer new TV shows and movies being released, said the Wall Street Journal. On the other hand, Microsoft's much larger cloud business, where the company's Azure public cloud service, saw its revenue jump 29% to an estimated $16.7 billion during the same quarter, while Google's cloud business grew a little less slowly to by about 22% year-on-year to about $8.4 billion. There's much more on the Microsoft and Google results, including what they call the cost of AI, but that I will come to in a later episode in coming days. That's it from me for now. Have a great day ahead. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.